Welcome. It's good to see you here. Uh, let's start with a word of prayer and we'll get into our conversation this evening. Father God, we ask in the name of your son Jesus to bless this time that we have set aside in our schedules as busy as they are because we are people who really desire, Lord, to have more of you. Uh, as we sang, you give and you take away, Lord, we pray that you'd give us great grace, that you take away guilt and shame and conflict from our lives, Lord, and that particularly as we talk about marriage and those relationships, that they might know your joyfulness, Lord. We trust you for this. We believe you that you hear us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening again. Um, this evening, we were going to continue building on what I talked on Sunday. I talked about the title of the message was Incompatibility by Design. And that's kind of an oxymoronic statement, isn't it? That you would design something to really not work well. Uh, and yet, somehow in the mystery of God, he has a way of doing just exactly that. And it's really interesting to me because I, I find that sometimes people say, well, what is the secret of having a compatible relationship? And I kind of have to laugh because there's only been one uh, totally compatible relationship in the history of the world. And after Genesis chapter 3, they ruined it and everybody's been incompatible afterwards. In other words, one of the very natures of sin is that it creates conflict in our relationships, and we'll actually get into exploring the specifics of that on this next weekend's message. But it's, it's, it's important, I think, to understand because so often uh, frustration and disappointment comes in our lives because our expectations are not in alignment with reality. You know, it's like the, that oxymoronic phrase, family vacation. You know, if you take the family, it's not going to be a vacation. You know, so there, those are, you know, we, I used to always tell people what you need to do is have a week that you spend with your kids and a week that you spend with your wife. But, but if you try to do that for two weeks, uh, both of you will come home totally exhausted and wish you'd never left home in the first place. And so, you know, stay vacations became the new alternative. Well, I don't, you know, maybe your kids were, were better behaved than mine were, but uh, nonetheless... We find that, that this is a, a, a real dynamic of our life. In fact, uh, it become, has become really the predominant basis for getting a divorce today. People will go to their lawyers and their lawyers will go before the courts and they'll say, well, uh, my clients want to file for divorce because they're incompatible or they have a term like irreconcilable differences. And it's an interesting thing because actually being incompatible has its own very precise legal definition. Listen to what legally constitutes an incompatible relationship, giving you basically the basis for a divorce. Number one, there's a conflict of personalities. Now that's a unique experience, right? Number two, a lack of mutual concern for the emotional needs of each other. In other words, you're not getting along and you don't like each other anymore. Um, financial difficulties. Invariably, financial difficulties arise, uh, particularly because oftentimes the agreements and many disagreements arise over finances and how the money should be handled. Um, a long physical separation. In other words, you're maybe in the same house, but you're not sleeping in the same bedrooms. Uh, difference of interests. That was a stunning one for me, a difference of interests. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, for me in my house, we live with this. For me, interest is football. For my wife's, it's the voice. 
I mean, we, we, I don't know, you know, there's an irreconcilable difference right there. I mean, that's all I can say. Um, resentment. We've talked a lot about resentment. The first week we got into the issue of, of contempt and resentment, distrust, constant bickering, and irreversible antagonistic feelings, which is a very legalese way of saying, I refuse to forgive. So it's interesting when you look at these things and you say, well, these are the basis for which most couples now are legally finding separation. Uh, they're things that are really very common in every relationship, not just marriages, but just even friendships. These kind of things take place all the time. So that I, if I, I look at this and saying, if these are valid reasons for getting a divorce, I don't know why I'm still married. Because my wife is guilty of every single one of these. <laughs> the truth be told, my wife and I have been in and out of every one of these dynamics on various occasions, sometimes several of them all at once because they kind of tend to domino, don't they? So part of the reason I make this emphasis isn't to kind of show how insane the world is, but how oftentimes we buy into the insanity. Because I can't tell you the number of individuals, men and women, that have come to me over the years and say, well, I've got to get a divorce because we're just not compatible. And I, you can't help myself. I always start laughing. I mean, you know, because again, I say, whoever has been. There are, all sorts of, there are so many things that make us incompatible. For example, the very first thing we talked about last weekend was gender. She's a female, I'm a male. Right away, we have compatibility issue. I went into that a great bill of detail. I won't replay that record for you. But I think I, I kind of made the point pretty clearly that just based upon the fact that we are of different genders creates a whole set of conflicts of interest and differences of opinion and perspective that lead to tensions in a relationship. Uh, family backgrounds. Now, there's a good one. Your family background. Yeah, it's interesting. My parents and my wife's parents were equally dysfunctional, but in very, very different ways. In fact, I considered their family dysfunction to be a problem because mine was normal. <laughs> and she thought my family's dysfunction was as weird as she'd ever seen because, I mean, we had little customs in our family, like no customs. It's like, you know, for her, a birthday, Valentine's, these things were notable events. My dad had me convinced that Valentine's Day was a ploy by the candy companies to get rid of their excess inventory. So don't let them get you. <laughs> so I never watched Valentine's Day ever being observed in my family ever once. And so my wife was in a state of apoplectic shock when Valentine's came and went, and I hadn't done anything to make it a special day for her. Really? Yeah, you say, no, no. I say, oh, you should have seen what my own no was for that one. <laughs> you know, even the idea of buying gifts, I mean, the culture of your family. Uh, you know, my, fam my parents were very practical. My mom always got a really good appliance for Christmas. My wife said, appliances are not gifts. <laughs> and then, here again, so on our first anniversary, I bought her a waffle iron. Now, it had nothing to do with the fact that I really liked waffles. It wasn't for me. Okay, it's kind of like buying your wife lingerie. It's not for you. So it's, you know, it's one of those kind of things. That you, to, you come from these different backgrounds, and you can't help but being shaped in ways that are going to be different. So what is acceptable in one family is not acceptable in another. Um, 
the culture that you come out of. And here again, if you, even you talk about in the U.S., if you're from different parts of the country, you have a whole different way of approaching things. I thought it was interesting was that I uh, sprained my ankle when I was down in Nashville last winter and um, went to an urgent care that was there. And uh, it was interesting because talking with the doctors and the nurses and stuff, the nurse comes in and she does, does all the profile and she says to me, uh, oh, you're going to like doctor. She's really nice. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't care if she's rude and belligerent. I just want her to be good. So you realize, and suddenly I began to hear this nice all the time. Everybody was evaluated by how nice they were. It's a very southern thing, I guess. But I'm thinking in my, whole, my mind the whole time, I don't want to know about that. I want to know, did they graduate from the school in Mexico City? That's all I want to know. Does this person really know what they're doing? And it turned out, well, she didn't. But... Um, you just find that these become different value systems. So one of my dearest friends is from Jackson, Mississippi. We are dear, dear friends. We just don't see a lot of things eye to eye. Everything from politics to women to men to... It just goes on and on and on. It's great fun, but the bottom line is those things can shape different views because you have had a different type of experience. You can have... Uh, fourthly, there's the issue about money. How do you handle money? My parents... Uh, gave frugality uh, a different kind of definition. I mean, they were so tight, it's just hard to believe. And yet at the same time, I grew up in a home that never wanted for anything. So that, I mean, we were an upper middle class. My wife's family, on the other hand, her dad was a, had, was a carpenter. He had spent a long period of time with a serious back injury, couldn't work, mom had to work. They faced all sorts of difficulties financially that they went through. And I was totally insensitive to that. I found that she worried about having enough money to pay the bills. And I just figured it'd work out some way because I had never known the insecurity of not having any money until I went into ministry. And then I got to learn that really well. <laughs> educational differences. <laughs> if you uh, have different educational standards, then you're going to find that your uh, communication and understanding of a lot of things are going to be at different levels. Social status. What is your position in the culture, the society? How are you viewed? Because it, how you feel that you're viewed may be real or not real, but it affects how you view yourself in relationship to other people. If you feel like you're a, a classy person, then you expect to be treated like a classy person. If you feel like you have no class, uh, you know, then you're going to feel like people view that way. And sometimes we become attracted to somebody who we see as being uh, either someone who is going to elevate our status or we marry somebody that we view as below our status because it gives us the upper hand in our mind. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, I've never thought of that, but your spouse has. Anyway, um, then there's the issue of life experiences. What have you gone through? I mentioned before about the difference between having you know, a secure lifestyle and, and, and having an impoverished lifestyle. But there are a lot of things that can happen if you're the child of divorce. You see, my parents didn't divorce, and that provided me with a certain security. My wife's family didn't divorce either, but I've known a lot of people, because there was divorce in a family, it left a whole set of emotional problems. And here's the thing about divorce is, the older you are when your parents divorce, the more traumatic the effect is upon you. So that I've known people who had their parents divorce when they were adults, and it shatters their world as adults. 
and it tends to start that set of dominoes moving in a direction. Uh, because basically, I love the way that Dan McMahon put it one time where he said that when my parents, he was 19 when his parents divorced, he said, I, I wondered if they, they said that the, the, they would stick together for the rest of their life. And he said, when they divorced, I thought they lied to me about that. What else did they lie to me about? I mean, it just, you think, I mean, he's a 19-year-old man. He's in the Air Force Academy. And suddenly he's having these childhood traumatic events where he wonders, who am I now? Because you see, the whole foundation had been pulled. Those are kind of life experiences, serious accidents, uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, all these kind of things that come into people's lives affect how they relate to the world around them and particularly to their spouse. And there can be fearfulness. I talked about last week about you know, knowing that my parents growing up were, um, had a lot of friends with benefits. And it was, for me, discovering that at 12 years of age had a tremendously negative effect upon my psyche so that I had to battle jealousy. I just had trouble trusting that my wife would be faithful to me because when you look at your two parental figures not being faithful to each other, then you begin to wonder, can I trust anybody in a relationship? So that that became one of the, real, one of the first and early conflicts my wife and I had to solve. I had to deal with the issue that I'm afraid to trust you because of what happened to me in my childhood. And then there's, of course, a very big issue, the issue of spirituality. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's amazing to me all the time, but I, I encounter it frequently where someone will say, well, I, I, I'm in love with somebody, I'm going to marry, but they're not a believer. And, uh, and it's, it's uh, one of those things, I had somebody actually email me a while back about that, and, and they said, so what do you think about that? And I said... Um, do you know how to spell the word divorce? <laughs> I said, this, the reality is that one, one of two things is going to happen, I said, in your relationship. Either it's going to become such a source of conflict and you're going to feel so alone in the relationship because there's this whole dimension of your life that you can't share with them and it creates this frustration. Or else you will decide to back away from your faith in order to be close to your spouse and you'll begin to walk away from the Lord. Well, in this case, that's exactly what happened, that the gentleman decided that uh, in order to maintain his marriage, it would be better if he just stopped following the Lord. So spiritual perspectives have a huge, huge impact. And sometimes it can be in big areas, sometimes it can be a little area. You, you come from a charismatic church background, and, and your spouse comes from, say, a Baptist or Reformed church background. You can have all sorts of difficulties getting, figuring out what you're going to do with certain spiritual gifts and how you view that and where you're going to go to church and what kind of things are you going to communicate to your children. So again, these aren't things that I say cancel out a marriage, but necessarily, but they are things that create the opportunity for conflict and disagreement to arise between people. And then there's one last thing I'll throw in there. The age you are when you get married. Here's an interesting fact. Uh, the younger you are when you marry, the more different your spouse is going to be from you. The older you are when you marry, the more likely you're married someone who is very much like you. Now, we might sit there and say, well, why in the world would that be the case? Well, when you think it through, it really makes a lot of sense. When you're young, 
you're not thinking about a lot of stuff. <laughs> There's just a whole, and sometimes you can have a, a, a false commonality. Well, we met in college, or we went to high school together. Well, what's happened is you've left your environments, your culture, your family, and you've gone into an artificial environment where you have things together. Like my wife and I, we met in the seventh grade in Mrs. Sherlock's uh, English class. She was a hottie, I was a naughty, so I, you know, was attracted to her and she barely knew I existed. But nonetheless, I tell people that's where it began. That was the first genesis of the relationship. She thought I was funny. And I don't think she meant it in a flattering way. But anyway, the point is that we had this life that we shared in the same small community. We lived around the block from each other, so we had all this commonality. But, it, our, but we might, might have been just as much living in different parts of the world considering our family backgrounds and all the rest of those dynamics. My, her parents had never spent a night away from each other for the first 25 years they were married. My parents, my dad <laughs> was gone a lot. And so it was just, it's just two totally different life experiences. But it didn't really reveal itself because we went to the same schools, we lived in the same community, we, we participated in so many similar functions that we had this shared life. But when it came to things that really mattered, we were vastly different people. So that when you get older and you begin to get into your tw late 20s, your early 30s, and your life begins to follow certain patterns, I mean, career begins to clarify itself and... Uh, all these different things that are particularly you, you'll find that you encounter people that you once were close to that you're not. Well, let me give an example. Has any of you ever gone to a high school reunion? Yeah? What was your experience? These, nobody has changed. Well, in my case, that was. They were still getting drunk and falling down. But it's, uh, it's interesting because you realize, in fact, this next spring um, is my... 50th high school reunion. <laughs> oh my gosh, I didn't even plan on living this long. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's kind of interesting because I have three friends that we were roommates together in boarding school and really looking forward to hanging to, with those guys. But we've had really literally nothing to do with each other in those last 50 years. You know? Uh, and the other three guys are usually successful in their career fields, and then there's me, but uh, it's going to be an interesting thing hanging together with each other, but the reality is, the little we've talked, that our lives have been on such vastly different trajectories, we realize that we live in virtually different worlds, and, uh, and for them, too, there's been a lot of really, really painful things that have happened. But I, all that I say is that, you know, People often say, well, okay, let me get that list and let me start managing the list. Good luck with that. Good luck with that because life doesn't come to us in any kind of orderly fashion. Life kind of is what happens to you when you're looking for something else to happen. It's the, it's, it's the realm of the unexpected, the things you hadn't planned on. And so I don't share that with you because I want you to start going through and checking the list and saying, how do we compare in regards to these things? But there's a question that people always have is, how do you predict you know, whether or not this is a, a workable relationship. And I have kind of a fun thing that I, at least I, I find it fun. It's something that was developed by four Harvard mathematicians. So I want to say, in a sense, take this with a grain of salt, okay? But they created a list of questions that they presented to 34,000 different people 
with regards to relationships and personality and so forth, and they created an algorithm to process all this information, and they came up with what they said were the three questions that will tell you whether or not the person you're going to marry is compatible. And um, let me just share them with you, and, and, and you can kind of keep score in your mind mentally uh, without sharing them with your spouse or anybody else. The first question they asked, do you like horror movies? Do you like horror movies? Well, let me tell you, I'll be a little self-disclosing here. Um, I detest them. My wife doesn't like them either, but when we got married, she did. Part of that was, of course, horror movies have gotten so much more horrible <laughs> in the last 50 years that neither one of us can stand them anymore. They're just kind of grotesque. But I remember when we forgot, first got married, she liked movies like The Birds. She really liked that, you know, all those Alfred Hitchcock things. She really enjoyed all those. And I couldn't stand them. And, and uh, it had nothing to do with this fear of birds that I had. I'm almost over it, right? <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. The first question, do you like horror movies? And I guarantee you that one of you will say yes, and the other one will say either yes or no. Okay. <laughs> the second question is, have you ever traveled around another country alone? How do you view that, traveling another country? Now, I took these two pictures here because here is obviously somebody who's in Salzburg trying to pretend that they're in The Sound of Music. The hills are alive with the sun. You know, and then the other person is sitting on a train. I've been this person. How did I end up here? <laughs> this is no fun. I'm alone. Because, you know, I'm the kind of person, if there isn't another body to share the experience with, it didn't really happen. So it's, you, you, you have to say, where do you fit into that? Some of you are going to look at that and go, man, that sounds like so much fun because I'm going to new, meet new people every way. You're kind of like an Alzheimer patient. Every day is a new day. Every relationship is a new relationship. And, you know, you look at the world that way. You just say, you've never met a stranger. You're looking for those new acquaintances, and you'll come home with a mailing list of people that you encountered all over wherever you went. Now, on the other hand, there's some of you who are going to feel like this is the biggest mistake I ever made in my entire life. In fact, you feel that way so much so that it's never going to happen, okay? The third question, and we'll go back over these a little bit and see how they relate. Wouldn't it be fun to chuck it all and go live on a sailboat? <laughs> now, some of you are going, <laughs> are you crazy? And that's why I say, these are two very different experiences of living on a sailboat. <laughs> one is from a sales brochure, <laughs> and the other one is more like what it ends up being like. So, you know, but okay, so what is, what is all this really trying to say? What is supposed to be the meaning behind this? Well, when you talk about the horror movies, it really gets into the question of what is the fun factor in your relationship? What do you consider to be having fun? You know, I shared uh, on the weekend about how that, you know, I was a, just a lifelong downhill skier and that was my thing. I loved it. It was my, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. And part of the reason I enjoyed it was because I was going downhill really fast. And, you know, I really liked that thing of getting a deep powder in the trees, which they tell me now is not very safe, but what do they know? But, you know, that was really thrilling to me. And I was so excited to share this with my wife. Now, my wife likes to know where everything is going to begin and end and at what speed. She wants everything very measured. I mean, 
I began to find the thing that was probably the most fun thing I did with my life, she hated. She absolutely hated. As I said last week, she said it's cold. It was more than just being cold. It was just the speed and the, the unpredictability of the environment. And she didn't like falling down and rolling down hills. I mean, these were little things that seemed to be a problem for her. And suddenly, so what do we do for fun? Because let me tell you, relationships have to have fun. If there's no fun in your marriage, you, you, right away you begin to see where some of the problems lie because you're not having fun together. Now, there may be reasons why you can be doing something that's perfectly fun and not having fun, but you have to have fun. That has to be a fun factor. And part of the challenge becomes if we're going to build a relationship, let's, what, are, what are the be things that we do that we find are fun together? The second thing, when you talk about traveling around alone, around some country, we're talking about your risk factor or your risk quotient. How much risk do you like? I mean, quite honestly, my wife and I have this conversation or have had this conversation many times because, you know, you know I've, I've traveled around the world a lot and uh, I've traveled by myself an awful lot. And my wife asked me one time, she says, I don't understand how you do this. And I said, yeah, how do you do what? She says, you get on a plane and fly to a foreign country where you've never been before and you're, and you're looking for somebody who's going to meet you and pick you up and take you where to go, but you don't know who they are and you don't know what they look like and you don't even know for sure that they'll actually show up. Now, when I was going to India a lot, there were only five occasions where nobody showed up for me. So, you know, it's, and all I can say is I learned how to manage that problem <laughs> because it's really not that difficult, really, as long as you can find a, a hotel someplace and a phone. But the bottom line is that to her, this was like, no, I found that when we travel overseas, I had to produce evidence <laughs> of what, who, when, where, and why. I mean, she wasn't leaving town until I had the evidence, you know, because, it, and I have a totally different perspective. To me, it's like, it'll work out. Something will work out, except in those few occasions it doesn't. But other than that, it's going to work out. So here again, you can have, and this isn't a spiritual thing. Please don't, don't fall into that trap. Well, if you have enough faith, you'd be able to just to get on a train and trust that God will get you there. <clears throat> Believe me, I'm the kind of guy who does that stuff. You know, when our car gets to a half a tank of gas, my wife makes me go in and fill it up. Pretty unreasonable, I think. I keep on saying, honey, we can keep on going for a long, we got, we got plenty, we can go, no, stop in this gas station. Why does she do that? Well, in the early years of our marriage, we would go on these drives and on these trips and, I don't know, something defective in the vehicles, they would run out of gas. <laughs> because... And I would always say, it's no big deal. I'll just walk to a gas station. It's no big deal. <laughs> While she sits in the car terrified for her life. But so you, you begin to realize that you're, how you feel about certain things can make a lot, a lot of difference. Well, we, <laughs> yeah, even packing for those trips. <laughs> My wife leaves nothing to chance. That's why she brings everything. See, I, I travel light. I've got a really lightweight carry-on. Man, I'm, I'm in and out. She has the biggest allowable limit. And she says it's not a problem because I'm the one who has to schlep that thing all over the world. 
So, you know, it's a, it's a different perspective nonetheless, but it's, she just tells me. Now, the good thing is, she'll, whenever I say, do you happen to have, she says, of course I do. <laughs> she has everything in it. But we just approach everything in that regard from a different perspective. And then you would be, the last one that said, would, you, would it be fun to chuck it all and go live on a sailboat? I call this the future factor. Somebody who wants to get rid of everything and move on a sailboat is not necessarily, very possibly, not thinking long term. <laughs> because time will make it so that that's not really feasible unless you plan on dying at sea. Because it's, it's, it has, it's, it's a limited time frame of your life that you can do something like that. But nonetheless, it also impinges on your whole material outlook on life as well. So these are, are I, think, I think there's some real value in this in terms of saying, how do I feel about this? What the authors of this uh, survey suggested is that married couples or single couples, engaged couples, ask each other these kind of questions to see what kind of response. Because what we find is if you're three out of three on either side, there's no right and there's no wrong to these questions. But if you're three out of three, you're going to probably have a lot, a lot of fun or you're going to at least be comfortable with each other. If you have two out of three, you're going to find that you're going to have to live your life making adjustments, that you're not always going to get your way, which is where the vast majority of people live. That's why I say it's not always great to be three out of three because people who are total agreement about everything probably are overlooking some important details. <laughs> you know, we talk about that devil advocate relationship. My wife thinks of things that never enter my mind. You know, I remember we took a vacation and I showed up to the rental car and discovered that I hadn't rented one. <laughs> and I had to pay a premium to rent one because I had completely spaced it out. So, you know, she would never make that mistake because she has lists and they all have check marked boxes next to them and they all get checked and we don't miss any details. But to me, you know, I'm saying it's only money to a woman who says, I grew up having to go without because there was no money. So it's, it creates these collisions. So uh, I leave a lot of the planning to her. Um, if you have one out of three, you're probably feeling kind of cramped in the relationship. You're probably very fun, frustrated, and you're probably feeling like you're not able to have as much fun and enjoyment out of the relationship because your spouse doesn't feel the same dynamic. It was interesting to me because my parents had a significant age gap. My dad was 17 years older than my mom. She didn't know that until well after they were married when she discovered that he lied to her about his age. Um, so they got off to a really good start. But it was interesting because I remember growing up and my dad was this elderly man who was tired. He'd work all day and he'd just plop down in the easy boy and watch TV and fall asleep. And my mom was still a young woman who was full of energy. And as many of you knew her, she, she never stopped when she was in her 90s. She was still going full speed. And it was like this, they ended up having this separate lives. Because my dad would just go, on. Oh. My mom's traveling all over the world. My dad's staying home watching TV. And he'd been all over the world. He said, I don't want to see it again. I've had enough of it. So you find that these kind of things create some interesting tensions. And you begin to feel like, well we're kind of cramped because what happens is that intimacy depends upon closeness. It, it requires time. You know, sometimes we say, well, I, I, like, I don't have a lot of quantity of time, but I give quality time. We especially say that about parenting. I'm, I'm giving them quality time. And uh, let me put that in a different context. Uh, you have to have surgery. It's serious surgery. And you sit down with the surgeon and you say, well, um, 
what's going to be involved, and he's explaining the surgery to you. And you always ask this question. You should always ask this question. How many times have you done this particular procedure? I mean, I'm talking about if I'm going to the groomer and they're going to clip my toenails, I want to know how many times have you done this procedure because I could lose a toe in one of those places. Well, the point is, if he says to you, well, you know, I really, you're going to be my first, but you know, I have had the best training and the best teaching and the best best preparation. I mean, I'm a risk taker, but I'm not stupid. You know, I don't, I don't want to fly to the moon with somebody who's got their learner's permit. I just, I want somebody who, who really has said, I've done this. When I had my last surgery, I mean, I sat down with the, the guy, the doctor. He's the head of the entire oncology department. He's the guy who's done this hundreds and hundreds of times. He's the guy who teaches other people how to do this. And I said to myself, you're the guy I want. So that when I go in there, you better be the guy who's in there with me. And you don't send one of your, your interns in. It's the idea that where does quality come from? Time. It's experience. Time. Experience and time. They're the same thing. If you have somebody who's... And that's the, the simple fact of life is that it's only as we begin to put a quality of time together that we actually begin to experience a quality kind of relationship. And one of the things that is kind of a misconception is that good relationships happen because there's good chemistry. Well, we've already got oil and vinegar called men and women. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so well, what do you mean good chemistry? You know, the only way you can get oil and vinegar to, to be together is there's a constant shaking going on. <laughs> And you have to shake and bake this relationship on an ongoing basis if there's going to be any kind of cohesiveness. There has to be time spent together. That's where I get back to the fun factor. When you have things that both of you find fun, then you get to do it together. Now, it's easy for my wife and I at this point in our journey because we have grandkids. And we both are in huge agreement about the funnest thing in the world is hanging with our grandkids. I mean, that's just... That kind of trumps every other thing you do in your life. So it's easy for us to be in agreement. We, we look at the same grandparent pictures and we laugh and do, you know. You have that kind of thing, but there has to be something that you stay, do together that provide, that's fun, that creates the time, that builds the relationship, that overcomes the very real, quote-unquote, incompatibilities. Or we could just simply say in a softer way, the things that are very different about you and your experience. If you are in total opposites on all three of those things, then I would suspect that you're frustrated in this marriage and uh, you may be in danger of drifting. And what I mean by that is you start looking around or at least your, your eyes are open to where you can have fun. And this can be in, in some fairly uh, non-lethal ways where guys who want to spend all their time with their buddies, they're just not home when they're hanging out with buddies. They're hunting, they're fishing, they're going over to a buddy's house to watch football, but they, they just do stuff that's fun and they accept the fact that this is not going to be a shared experience, which in turn usually relates to frustration in the marriage because the world's different than the one our, even my parents grew up in. It used to be that you'd be born into a community, you'd go to school there, your friends were all within that community, your extended family lived within that community, and 
when you got together at Thanksgiving, it was your family and friends from generation, and you saw each other all the time, and there was always this hanging out. You always had people to give you that kind of fun and social. All the gals, and at least mine knew when I grew up, all the women went this way, all the guys went that way. You know, it was like, and nobody felt left out because we just figured that's the order of the universe. But today, with every, every family moving every five years, people are relocating all over the world, you find that you're living in communities where you virtually know no one. And you have to uh, begin to depend more and more upon each other. And that's when you begin to feel like we're together all the time. I'm depending upon you to be my sole source of social engagement and entertainment and fun. And uh, we don't have fun because we're on opposite ends of the poles. Am I saying that that's a predictor of divorce? It doesn't have to be, but it often is. Now, Let's dig a little bit deeper here. Um, there are two passages of Scripture that I'd like to, to, to touch on tonight. Uh, and the first one is, is Proverbs 27, 19. And it says, as water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. We know what happens when, the, when a face looks at water. What does it see? It sees its own self. And part of the idea of interaction with other people is not just simply to see the other person, but also to see yourself through the eyes of other people. In other words, the best perspective on you is someone who is with you and looking at you and living with you and is able to point out who you are. This is one of the invaluable dynamics of marriage. Because there are things I have learned about myself that you couldn't have convinced me in a thousand years were true, except... I wanted to have a relationship with my wife, and so therefore I had to listen to what she was saying. And you suddenly discover, you know, there's truth in what you're saying, that I am in just the way that you say. So this is an important thing to keep in mind, that what relationships are designed to do is to be mirrors that we can look back at ourselves and get a better understanding of who we are. Now, we talked about the first week about the issue of uh, disrespect or uh, contempt. You see, there's the problem because if I have a resentment towards the other person, then I am incapable of hearing what they're saying to me. Now, not everything they say to you is going to be true because oftentimes we project our own hang-ups and issues on other people. That's a common practice. So, you know, that, there's always that dynamic. And I'm not saying that everything somebody else says to you is always the truth because oftentimes people project, and we'll get into this on the weekend, about the whole dynamic of projection. So that you have to, you know, evaluate the accuracy. But I found even in the most inaccurate appraisal, there is at least a measure of truth. There, or else there would be no basis for the observation of the comment that the person is making. So it's important that we understand this dynamic has been created for a reflective experience. The second one is in Proverbs 27, 17, two verses before this. Uh, and it says, this iron sharpens iron so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. So let me read you something that I think helps to illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, I gave a couple of stories this weekend. They were very funny. This isn't funny, but it's important. 
And it's really interesting, I think, I guarantee you. But it was written by an um, a author by the name of uh, Richard Paul Evans, who is a number one New York Times bestseller, and he's also a USA Today bestseller. He's, I mean, he's written over 25 books. He's a very, very successful writer. And uh, I'm sure that many of you are familiar with a lot of the works that he has written. He writes a lot of stuff in the secular world, but actually he himself is a believer in Christ, as becomes fairly evident. But he, he wrote this uh, article about how he and his wife nearly ended up in divorce. And how he worked through this is something I think we really need to listen to and pay attention to. It, it reads this way. He says, for years, my wife Carrie and I struggled. Looking back, I'm not exactly sure what initially drew us together. You ever had that thought? How did we decide that we were a fit? Don't raise your hands or admit it, but you know, keep that to yourself. But he says, looking back, I'm not sure, exactly sure what initially drew us together, but our personalities didn't quite match up. And the longer we were married, the more extreme the differences seemed, which is exactly the way it's supposed to work. Encountering fame and fortune didn't make our marriage any easier. In fact, it exacerbated the problem. You know, the idea if we could just, if he could just get a better job, if we had a better income, that would take care of it. He said, no, it was just the opposite. It just tended to make everything worse. In fact, he says, the tension between us got so bad that going out on a book tour became a relief. Though it seems we always paid for it on re-entry, on coming home. Our fighting became so constant that it was difficult to even imagine a peaceful relationship. We became perpetually defensive building emotional fortresses around our hearts. We were on the edge of divorce, and more than once we discussed it. I was on a book tour when things came to a head. We had just had another big fight on the phone, and Carrie had hung up on me. I was alone and lonely, frustrated and angry. I had reached my limit. That's when I turned to God, or turned on God. <laughs> I don't know if you would call it prayer. Maybe shouting at God isn't prayer. Maybe it is. But whatever I was engaged in, I'll never forget it. I was, it was, I was standing in the shower of a Buckhead Atlanta Ritz-Carlton yelling at God that marriage was wrong and I couldn't do it anymore. And as much as I hated the idea of divorce, the pain of being together was just too much. I was also confused. I couldn't figure out why marriage with Carrie was so hard. Deep down, I knew that Carrie was a good person and I was a good person, so why couldn't we get along? Why had I married someone so different than me? Why wouldn't she change? Finally, hoarse and broken, I sat down in the shower and began to cry. In the depths of my despair, powerful inspiration came to me. You can't change her, Rick. You can only change yourself. At that moment, I began to pray. If I can't change her, God, then change me. I prayed late into the night. I prayed the next day on the flight home. I prayed as I walked in the door to a cold wife who would barely even acknowledge me. That night, as we lay in our bed, inches from each other, yet miles apart, the inspiration came. I knew what I had to do. The next morning, I rolled over in my bed next to Carrie, and I asked, how can I make your day better? Carrie looked at me angrily. What? 
How can I make your day better? You can't, she said. Why are you asking that? Because I mean it, I said. I just want to know what I can do to make your day better. She looked at me cynically. You want to do something? Go clean the kitchen. She likely expected me to get mad. Instead, I just nodded. Okay. I got up and I cleaned the kitchen. The next day, I asked the same thing. What can I do to make your day better? Her eyes narrowed. Clean the garage. I took a deep breath. (laughs) I had already a busy day, and I knew she had made the request in spite. I was tempted to blow up at her, but instead I said, okay. I got up and for the next two hours cleaned the garage. Carrie wasn't sure what to think. The next morning came. What can I do to make your day better? Nothing, she said. (laughs) You can't do anything. Please stop saying that. I'm sorry, I said, but I can't. I made a commitment to myself. What can I do to make your day better? Why are you doing this? Because I care about you, I said, and our marriage. The next morning I asked again, and the next, and the next. And then during the second week, a miracle occurred. As I asked the question, Carrie's eyes welled up with tears. Then she broke down crying. And when she could speak, she said, please stop asking me that. You're not the problem. I am. I am hard to live with. I don't know why you stay with me. See what's happening in her heart? She was anticipating divorce and she was beginning to protect herself emotionally. That's what we do. We start becoming not nice people because we're protecting ourselves emotionally. We're pushing the other person back. I gently lifted her chin until she was looking in my eyes. It's because I love you. What can I do to make your day better? I should be asking you that, she said. You should, I said. (laughs) But not now. Right now, I need to be the change. You need to know how much you mean to me. She put her head against my chest. I'm sorry, I've been so mean. I love you, I said. I love you, she replied. Now, what can I do to make your day better? She looked at me sweetly. Can we maybe just spend some time together? I smiled, I'd like that. I continued asking for more than a month, and things did change. The fighting stopped, and then Carrie began asking, what do you need from me? How can I be a better wife? The walls between us fell. We began having meaningful discussion on what we wanted from life, how we could make each other happier. No, we didn't solve all our problems. I can't even say we never fought again, but the nature of our fights changed. Not only were they becoming more and more rare, they lacked the energy they once had. We deprived them oxygen. We just didn't have it in us to hurt each other anymore. Carrie and I have been now married 30 years. I not only love my wife, I like her. I like being with her. I crave her. I need her. Many of our differences have become strengths and the others, well, they just don't matter. 
We've learned how to take care of each other, and more importantly, we've gained the desire to do so. And then he begins to delineate some things that he concludes, which I think are really key points here. Number one, marriage is hard. But so is parenthood, keeping fit, and writing books, and everything else important and worthwhile in life. Anything that's worthwhile is hard. And marriage is worthwhile, and it's hard. Number two, to have a partner in life is a remarkable gift. Not a burden. You know the old saying, it's cheaper to keep her. No, it isn't. (laughs) It's a gift. It's a remarkable gift that will not be there forever. As my 93-year-old father-in-law day by day sits next to the bed of his wife who is slowly leaving our world, you realize that this is a gift that is not forever. There will come a day when you're alone. If you ask him, what's the thing he fears the most? Being alone. Thirdly, he says, I've always learned that the institution of marriage can help heal us of our most unlovable parts. And we all have unlovable parts. Through time, I've learned that our experience was an illustration of a much larger lesson about marriage. The question everyone is in a committed relationship should ask their significant other is, what can I do to make your life better? That's love. Romance novels, and I've written a few, are all about desire and happily ever after, but happily ever after doesn't come from desire at least not the kind portrayed in most pulp romances. Real love, number four, is not a desire, not to desire a person, but to truly desire their happiness. Sometimes even at the expense of our own happiness. Isn't that what Jesus said? It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. How many of us think about that? The secret to a happy relationship is to outgive each other. That's the secret of a happy relationship. Be committed to outgiving each other. Real love is not to make another person a carbon copy of oneself. It is to expand our own capabilities of tolerance and caring, to actively seek another's well-being. All else is simply a charade of self-interest. I'm not saying that what happened to Carrie and me will work for everyone. I'm not even claiming that all marriages should be saved. But for me, I am incredibly grateful for the inspiration that came to me that day so long ago. I'm grateful that my family is still intact and that I still have my wife, my best friend, in bed to me next uh, next to me when I wake in the morning. And I'm grateful that even now, decades later, every now and then, one of us will still roll over and say, what can I do to make your day better? Being on either side of that question is something waking up for. Being on either side of that question is something worth waking up for. Don't refuse the gift of the person that God has brought into your life. And don't abuse the gift. How do you abuse the gift? By not valuing it. You ever go to a party and you bought something for somebody? You gave a lot of time, thought, and 
and money to buy them this gift and you're really excited for them to get it and you come and you give it to them and they unwrap it and everybody's excited and everybody's looking on and they open it up and they look at it and go, oh, thanks, and move on to the next one. How do you feel? You feel like you've been horribly devalued. You feel embarrassed. You feel shame. You see, that's abusing the gift. When we treat our spouse that way, we're abusing the gift. When we assume that they're always going to be there because, well, in my case, it's my animal magnetism that keeps her stuck to me. Yeah. She calls it body odor and sends me to the shower. The whole point is that you assume something and uh, you know what that always makes you and me. I've had many uh, single people ask me over the years, does God have a a perfect person, a, you know, just a perfect one for you. And I, and I kind of give a, a kind of a, a politician's answer to that question. I don't know what made me think about politicians. But I said, you know, if you're not married, God has lots of options out there and you need to be very careful in your selection because you can make the wrong choice. Now, if you are married... Absolutely, there's only one person that God has for you, and that was His plan from time before time in eternity. So you need to value that one person. Uh, am I being schizophrenic? Well, I've been accused of that a lot of times, and that and many other things. But and that's the least of what I've been accused of. But the bottom line is, we need to understand that this is not a replicable relationship. This is the one. And even if you've been through divorce, you know this even better than I know it. You don't get divorced and walk away clean and start all over again. You ever watch, you ever look at a piece of plywood? Plywood is powerfully strong because it's layers of different, different kinds and uh, uh, directions of wood that are glued together to give it additional strength. So plywood is much stronger for its size than a comparable piece of wood would be. But have you ever tried to separate the sheets of plywood? you know, what happens? <laughs> you ruin it. And part of this side gets pulled off and is now stuck on this side. Well, I say that's often what divorce is like. You go through divorce experience, you, you may separate, but you left part of you behind. And you are carrying with you part of them. And you say, no, I don't. I just say, have you ever talked about them since you divorced? <laughs> You're still carrying them. There was an effect there in your life. That's why you understand that you can split sheets of plywood apart. They were just never designed to be divided that way. And neither were you and I. It's a damaging thing. And I don't say that to put guilt on people who have been through divorce. I, I, I'm try, I don't want to be insensitive to that. I know it's a terrible thing. I'm not implying that you're wrong or you're in sin because that happened. I'm just saying you just don't get away from it clean. Now, you may be sitting there saying, I'm happier now. This was a bad situation. I'm glad I'm out of that situation. And you may be absolutely right. I'm not going to argue that point. I don't even want to have a discussion after I'm done here. But I'm just simply saying, you don't come out of that clean. That God redeems and He fixes and He does all sorts of things. But you don't come out of that without having an effect upon your life. And you don't go through that kind of experience saying, I wish I had never had to go through that experience, ever. Because God's plan... His original design was for two sinless people to spend the rest of their life together. 
And then those two sinless people ruined that for the rest of us. And is Adam going to get an earful when I get to heaven? I tell you, I just got to... So what are we left with? We're left with a lot of sinful, sin-damaged, soul-injured uh, people with issues. And we find this other person that we like to convince ourselves does not have issues, and lo and behold, they tricked us. My wife came to, soon after we were married, to believe in alien abductions. She was convinced the guy she married had been taken and they'd replaced her with this robot. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's just the dynamic. We all understand these things, I hope. But I know some of you left some questions and we will get to them maybe next week. I promise you this, I will answer these questions, all the questions that you've been sending in someday. <laughs> Father, I thank you for the time. I thank you for the grace that allowed me to take a little more time. Uh, I pray, Lord, that the things that I've tried to share would make sense and would help us all, myself included. There's no more convicted person in the audience than the preacher himself. So, God, I pray that you would help us to respond in faith to you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. You want to stand as uh, Luke and Jessica close us out?